On this episode of the podcast, we talk about the Intercontinental Championship, my personal favourite championship in WWE history. We talk about some of the greatest matches, some of the greatest champions, and some of the greatest overall workers in wrestling history. I'm joined by Podcast Hall of Famer, Spud, and the Podcast Social Media Editor, Needers. Let's get to the show. I want to talk about the workers' title, the Intercontinental Championship. I want to talk Intercontinental Championship matches, some of the best ones, some of the matches that spring to memory, and I want to talk about some of the best Intercontinental Champions of all time. So a few that spring immediately to my head in terms of the matches would be Shawn Michaels, Razor Ramon at SummerSlam 95, with Orton and Edge, Vengeance 04, Orton and Cactus Jack also in 2004 at Backlash. Bret Hart, Mr. Perfect, SummerSlam 2001. Rock and Triple H at SummerSlam 98. 2001? Is it 2001? Um, nah, it was 1991, surely. 91, yes, you're right. It was, it was SummerSlam 1991. And Rock, Triple H, SummerSlam 1998. Um, Spud, starting with you, specifically the Intercontinental title, it, it always sticks out to me is it was often the best match on the card. And what got me thinking about this topic was something Bret Hart said. When I went to Bret Hart Q&A, he said they always give the biggest draw the world title in the in early 90s era, or the WWF title. He says, but they always give who he felt and who they felt was probably the best in-ring worker, the Intercontinental title. So when he was given the Intercontinental title, he felt it was a massive pat in the back. So it just it got me thinking about this topic. And just going to throw it straight over to you. Have you any thoughts about the Intercontinental title in general and any particular matches that just stick out to you? Yeah, I didn't actually know that that Cactus Jack match was uh, was for the Intercontinental. That's pretty cool. Basically, like you said, it's usually given to the guys that are that can go a little bit faster. And it's usually used as a stepping stone up to the world title. You've got Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, Edge... Kurt Angle, D'Lo Brown, everybody in there that's like uh, that should be destined for like bigger things. So yeah, match wise, uh, the British Bulldog versus Bret Hart. Yeah, uh, that's one of the big ones just because of the crowd reaction and where it happened. Also, at, at pretty much going through like some of the matches, I think Bret Hart might be the best Intercontinental in my eyes, Intercontinental Champion. Because you've got him against Roddy Piper at Mania. Yeah, I think it right. was Mania 8. Um, yeah, so, like you said, usually status is show. It at least goes on for a longer time than your kind of uh, world titles matches. Uh, very rarely gets on to the main event. Uh, but it's definitely a very important title. There's a reason it's been about for... I mean, from the 70s, I think. So, yeah, uh, really big tight and like you said, needs to go to the workers. Yeah. Neil, switching to you then, the workers' title, the Intercontinental title, what do you think about the title in general and any particular Intercontinental title matches that really stick out to you? 
Well, harking back to the Attitude Era, I always thought the Intercontinental Championship belt of that era was one of the nicest belts that WWE have ever had. I just like the design of it. Uh, I agree with what Spud says there. It's I like the way, and it's more so back in the day, where it used to be like a stepping stone to see if these guys were ready to be catapulted into the main event scene. The likes of The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Triple H, etc. They were intercontinental champions before you know, they really made it into the main event. And certain matches that always stick out for me, um, again, it's a bit of a random one, and it's not like a straight one-on-one match, but Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit had a ladder match at Royal Rumble 2001, which was a pretty good match. And then, again, it's WrestleMania many moons ago. I think this match sort of really did help put the Intercontinental title in good stead was that Hogan against Ultimate Warrior match where it was like winner takes all. You hit both belts in the main event. That that's uh that's pretty cool. Yeah. Not not to give away any any spoilers, Spud, so I apologize if you plan on watching this. Um that Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior the the title V title match. I always I always like a title v title for me just there's had a big a big big feel about it and what NXT is trying to do next week and then the following week it seems to be you know something that they're harking back to with the winner of next week's North American Triple Threat goes on to fight Adam Cole on a title v title match the week after I think there's definitely a bigger fight feel or a unique fight feel I would say about the title v title matches. Spud, speaking of some of the big Intercontinental title matches, and you mentioned one was Bret Hart and the British Bulldog, and a very random fact about that match was that it went on last at SummerSlam. Technically, it went on, well, it did go on last, but when WWE produced the show in terms of their video and even in the WWE Network, they've edited SummerSlam that that match is not last, but they put it on last because of the crowd reaction, as you rightly said. I just always thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, basically, um, I think when it was shown, it was obviously taped over here and then shown with time delay over in America, and that's the way they showed it back in 91. Um, I think it was, was it Flair and Macho Man was the main event that they showed? Yeah, I think you're right. I think, I'd, I haven't seen it in that long, but yeah, you couldn't not have British Bulldog go uh, over in the main event uh, in London, basically. It was a no-brainer. Yeah, and another Intercontinental title match that always sticks out to me, even though it probably wasn't the best match, or it wouldn't even be talked about as a great match, but for me, I always thought it was very good. The story of what happened during the match, after the match, everything... And it goes all the way from the Royal Rumble 98 to WrestleMania 98. And it was really a star-making rivalry, in my opinion, for The Rock. was The Rock and Ken Shamrock. And I know you're a huge fan of Ken Shamrock. Do you have any thoughts on that particular rivalry over the Intercontinental title? Well, uh, like I told you before, 98's kind of my coming of age when it comes to like being a fan of wrestling. And uh, I do remember um, that feud, I think... In the Royal Rumble, he 
hits him with like a knuckle duster and then hides it in Ken Shamrock's like tights and that always bugged me because Ken Shamrock like got the win and then it was reversed because the rock says you know he's got knuckle duster in his tights but why wouldn't Ken Shamrock like realize that there's a knuckle duster just resting up against himself <laughs> that always annoyed me and then he went nuts and uh hit all the referees and sergeant slaughter and all sorts so i do like that uh it was a star making feud for the rock as you said that's when he was starting to get a proper cocky rock uh i think that's during the time that the nation of domination and farouk was kind of i couldn't be bothered with the rock anymore and he kicks him out um but yeah, you're right. It's like it's not really talked about. I think the fact that Ken Shamrocks it just didn't last that long in the WWE, F, whatever. Um, it would be talked about more if he was more of a big star, basically. Yeah, and then even going right through to WrestleMania 14, they had the Rock versus Shamrock again, and it's to me it's very very impressive that you can keep a rivalry going from before the Royal Rumble. You know, because they were feuding a lot of January, and then they had the match at the Rumble, and it continued all the way to WrestleMania, and it was still hot at WrestleMania, because the fans really wanted to see The Rock get his comeuppance. You know, the really yeah. and Shamrock put in a, a probably a dominating performance, made The Rock tap. The Rock's mouth was bleeding. It, it was br- a brilliant storytelling. But then after the bell, he wouldn't stop beating up The Rock. And he put the ankle lock on him. He was throwing him about. The rocket carried out on the stretcher, and Shamrock's throwing the stretcher over. He done the big belly to belly up in the was it like the bandstand where the DX band was from yeah. earlier in the night and stuff like that. And then the ref reversed the decision, put the belt back to the rock, and disqualified Shamrock. And I just thought it was brilliant storytelling, and it got so much heat on the rock. Yeah, it's like, um, I remember watching it because you saw The Rock kind of being carried out and then it was The Fink just announced that Ken Shamrock had been disqualified and then, you know, everything went nuts with it. Like you're saying, it's, I mean, that's three, four months of storytelling, like you're saying, but it didn't feel boring because there was always something going on. Whereas these days you get six months of Baron Corbin versus Roman Reigns. And they're fighting each other week in, week out, tag team matches, triple threat, or six-man tags. It just feels stale really quickly now. I don't know if it's rose-tinted glasses or if it has got progressively worse and there's too much product. But it's hard to maintain that sort of level of storytelling over that space of time. Yeah. And Neil, I'm going to move to you here in a second. I just want to say, as comment on what Spud just said there, they, I believe they really kept that going because they actually, with The Rock being in the nation and stuff, they almost had Shamrock having to get through the nation just to get to The Rock. And every time there was something thrown up in his face, you know, that he couldn't get past. Like, maybe he beat D'Lo Brown or he beat someone like Farouk or whatever. And then they had, remember, he brought Mark Henry in. Then Mark Henry turned on him and joined the nation and stuff like that. So there was all those little nuances that just looked like The Rock was just, you know, that cocky heel that had his number. Um, I just thought it was an excellent storytelling the whole way through, and it was definitely a star-making performance for The Rock. And they, The Rock moved on from Ken Shamrock in 1998 to a, probably the start of one of the best feuds in wrestling. He moved on to The Rock and Triple H, and they had that brilliant match at SummerSlam 98 with the latter. Triple H went over, huge crowd reaction. The people loved it. The Rock done the job. It helped elevate Triple H. 
to that potential star making level because previously to that he was Shawn Michaels' lackey really um, who could go in the ring and was a pretty much a European champion at that stage so based on that particular rivalry and that match and the beginning of that rivalry which we would see push right on the end of the 2000s where they had some brilliant matches over the then the WWF title um, have you any thoughts on Triple H and The Rock and their entire rivalry, but specifically their intercontinental stuff in the early years, the 1998 years? Well, like I said earlier on, the intercontinental title was used back then to cement stars and to, to help elevate them to the next level. And that's the case with both Triple H and The Rock, because as you say, it's only just over a year or so after where the two of them, uh, you, you know, it started feuding for the WWF title. You know, I know a bit of Austin was involved there as well. But when I first got into the wrestling, it was around that time that The Rock and Triple H had both benefited from that intercontinental title feud and were now involved in the feud for the WWF title. And to me, it was always a bit of a shame that they never actually got a one-on-one match at WrestleMania because the seeds were planted when they had that great feud over the Intercontinental title. Then you had The Nation and you had DX feuding as well around then. And then they both progressed naturally onto the next level. And to me, they should have had a a WrestleMania main event. I know you had the Fatal 4-Way, but an actual one-on-one because then, obviously, Backlash and Judgment Day after that, they had one-on-one matches as well. But it just goes to show that if good, solid storyline, sorry, storytelling, of if, if used correctly around the IC title, it actually can help elevate people and put them into the upper echelons of the card. And that's personified for Triple H and The Rock together. Yeah, I completely, completely agree. It, it was absolutely fantastic. And... Speaking of, that was SummerSlam 1998, but I want to go with you right back to SummerSlam, as you rightly corrected me, 1991, not 2001. Quite possibly one of the best SummerSlam matches ever. Bret Hart, Mr. Perfect. Um, it's it's quite widely known that Mr. Perfect done that match with a very bad back, which shows you how good a performer he really was. Give me some thoughts on that match, but also both these competitors and what the IC title meant to them and their legacy well basically it put Bret Hart Bret Hart with the Intercontinental Championship proved himself to be a company guy to be a hard worker I was never a fan of him like growing up because you know it's just I just thought he was boring he wasn't very good in the mic as well but the more you watch as you get older the more you appreciate the way he tells stories in the ring etc etc and mr perfect he's one of those guys that was almost a top guy but never could quite push on i believe he was meant to win a royal rumble but hulk hogan kiboshed it and took it uh, for a change yeah (laughs) shocker and that match i do remember it being a quality match i'm wishing they had more matches but like you said there was a big layoff for uh mr perfect after that i believe and Bret Hart, after the steroid scandal and stuff like that, moved on to the world title. Uh, started focusing on a little bit of smaller guys like Sean and Bret. But I do have... I, I watched this match a couple of weeks ago, I believe, just uh, coincidentally. And I do remember being like, whoa, this is the way it should be. Um, 
It's technical. It's fast-paced. They're both bumping like bosses. Absolute. Anybody should check this match out. Personally speaking. Yeah, because I always remember when when Brett kicked out of that perfect plex, it was it was a mm-hmm. big deal. You know, nowadays in majority, not even just nowadays, right back the Attitude Era and right up to now, specifically towards the end of the Attitude Era and right up to say modern day wrestling. When you're watching a pay-per-view and someone nails their finisher, you're going, oh, it's too early in the match that he did. There'll, there'll be a bit more, and then there'll be another couple of finishers. Where in 1991, when someone kicked out of a finisher, it was a big deal. And when he hit the perfect plex and Breck at the kick out, it was like the fans, <gasps> you know, there was that huge mm-hmm. shock factor. And I thought the selling was so good. Because remember when Brett got the sharpshooter in, perfect pretty much tapped instantly, which I thought, not only put Brett over, but put his finisher over so, so much that just elevated him so highly. Yeah, 100%. I think uh, finishers aren't as widely protected. Um, you could argue a couple just don't get kicked out of, but for the most part, like you said, it's like, oh, it's only 10 minutes into a, a match. He's hit the spear. He's kicking out of this, you know? Um, but yeah, uh, finishers, I think they need to be sort of looked at and be finishes that's why they're called finishers yeah. it's uh otherwise just call them like signature moves um but yeah definitely when he kicked out of the perfect plex and the crowd went nuts it shows you that's all it needs to be it doesn't need to be like a, a quadruple flip into a, a moonsault um it can just be something as simple as a kick out at the right time of a match that could elevate a match uh, into the five star sort of rating so yeah uh, I think it's something that needs to be looked at and talked about these days that finishers don't finish anymore yeah that's that, that's a, it's a huge thing it's a huge topic um, I want to keep sort of Brad Hart at the forefront of this conversation because I want to start talking about some of the best Intercontinental Champions ever but Neil another one who would be in that conversation is the best Intercontinental Champions ever would be Chris Jericho and as you rightly mentioned earlier in one of your favourite matches, the Royal Rumble 2001, Chris Jericho versus He Who Shall Not Be Named. That was It's not only just a brilliant Intercontinental title match. For me, that would be one of the best matches in the Royal Rumble history. It was that good. You were a fan of, of both these guys in terms of their character, their gimmick, their in-ring work, everything. It was just the, the summer before that, summer of 2000, where Benoit... We talked about this in a different podcast where an upper mid-carder can sometimes go and challenge a world champion at a B-list pay-per-view. And in the summer before that, Benoit was feuding with The Rock in a losing effort, but a brilliant match a fully loaded 2000. But here we are at Royal Rumble 2001 and you've both these guys, huge potential, one of the biggest pay-per-views of the year, one of your favourite Intercontinental title matches. Just give me some thoughts on both these guys and the Intercontinental title match and what it, what you think it done for both these guys' career. You only have to look back to WrestleMania 2000 and they had the triple threat match between Kurt Angle, Chris Benoit and Chris Jericho for the European and the Intercontinental titles. Look at the trajectory it put them three men on the following year or a couple of years after that, you're talking the three of them are all at, at, at some stage have all main evented WrestleMania. So 2002, Jericho main evented. 2003, Angle main evented. 2004, 
Benoit main evented. And to me, that sort of backs up what we were saying earlier on with regards to the Intercontinental title helping um, fire these boys into the main event. And if so, you know, they might drop out of the main event for a while, back into the upper mid card. You alluded to it there with Benoit fighting The Rock for the title in 2000. Then he went back down to Intercontinental level. That was the good thing back then. I, you talked about it the other night with Jericho on a different podcast, whereas back then he was one of those guys that could be fired into the main event for a month or so, but then drop back down into sort of upper mid-card intercontinental level. And 2001 is a good example of that because Jericho won that off Benoit at the Rumble, and Benoit had actually won it off uh, the one Billy Gunn at Armageddon the month before that. And from there on, you know, Jericho, he had it until Backlash... Am I right in saying he lost it to William Regal in a Duchess of Queensby rules match? <laughs> which was totally absurd. Or, sorry, no, no, I think I've got that wrong. Jericho, did Jericho go into WrestleMania X7 with the Intercontinental title? and he, and he Or did he win it off Regal at X7? I honestly can't remember. I've always associated... <laughs> I've always associated Regal more so with the European, except for the Intercontinental title reign sticks out with me when he lost the RVD at Mini 18. But well, at 17, I can't they remember at 17, to be honest. It was Jericho against Regal in the opening match, and Jericho won, but then a backlash that fought in a Duchess of Queen's Three Rules match as well, which was absurd and all that sort of stuff. But uh, back to the original point with Jericho, he, well, he's obviously he's got the most title and look how well it served him in the long run because he again like I said he's one of those boys that can drop out of the main event go down into the mid card go back up to the main event if, if, if needs be like and even going back to that match again with Benoit he had a good feud with uh, Kurt Angle after that uh, going into Wrestlemania they had a match and then they had, an, they had an Ironman match and submission match and stuff, uh, two out of three falls over the next couple of months after that. And it was great storytelling. And that all sort of stems from those three guys from the WrestleMania in 2000. Yeah, and as you said, all three of them really pushed on their careers and made stars, which seems to be the recurrent theme here as to what we're sort of talking about when we talk about the Intercontinental title. Um, I want to talk about two other guys who I thought had a brilliant match, and a lot of people talk about it as one of the greatest WrestleMania matches of all time. Spud, we're going to go right back to WrestleMania 3 for the Macho mm-hmm. Man versus the Dragon Ricky Steamboat. Yeah. Um, like you said, it's regarded as one of the best of all time. It's usually up there with people. Um, I like it. It wouldn't be... I don't think it ages spe- like spectacularly. Uh but I do like, I do enjoy the match. And Macho Man, he's another one that should be in the running for the best Intercontinental of all time. He used to call it the Intercontinental uh, Intercontinental Heavyweight Championship, which give it that little bit more gravitas uh, in interviews and stuff. But then he could have just been waffling because his interviews were always insane. Um, <laughs> but I do enjoy that match. Like I said, I think Ricky Steamboat, especially in WWE, doesn't get his dues. Yeah, I'd um, agree. I'd agree with that. In the 
Yeah, in the NWA, he had fantastic matches with Ric Flair that you can, I'm pretty sure you can see on the network. Um, when he came back to do that feud with Chris Jericho, he looked like he hadn't missed a step. A silver fox just darting about the ring like he's 20 years his junior. Um, yeah, I think it's an overused match in terms of people using it as an example of a great match. But it definitely should be in the running and it should be talked about. And if anybody's interested in wrestling, they should give it a watch. Yeah, I'd agree with you on everything you've said there. I, I do think it's a brilliant match, but I would agree to an extent parts of it doesn't age spectacularly. But when you watch it and consider when it actually happened, you're watching it and going, this is fantastic. Um, it's ahead of its time. It's massively ahead of its time, yeah. Yeah, and then what I also really liked was when I'd done a little bit of sort of digging into this match, this match was reportedly completely mapped out as per the Macho Man's request, he wanted everything his way, and which which sort of shocked me when I read that. I didn't think he was the type to really map out every, like every single match. Um, but yeah, apparently he was the one that said we should do this, then we should do that, and then we should try this, then we should do it, and this should be the finish. And I thought that was he, really really yeah. interesting. Yeah, he's there's certain wrestlers that are like, let's do it in the ring you hear about anyway and then you've got macho man ddp i believe uh, as well he needs to have every step of the match and he's always trying to do like new wacky stuff and how to get into the the diamond cutter um but he would like map it out like you said it's like right here here seven minutes in we'll do this i'll come off the top you roll me up and whatever um so it is interesting i think it's interesting the way certain wrestlers can just go out and do it but certain ones need to sit down and proper think about it yeah 100 percent. moving on to something a little bit more recent neil i want to speak specifically about this individual and you could do an entire podcast on this individual he's had such a good career but this individual in two specific matches you had randy orton in 2004 um just on a tear specifically with the intercontinental title um, at WrestleMania, Randy Orton, Batista and Flair beat the Rock and Sock Connection. Orton got the pin over Mick Foley, which was huge in itself just because, you know, it was the Rock's first match back in a year. Even though he didn't take the pin, the fact that Orton and Batista, who were really only about a year, if even a year, into their push, not even a year, because I think Evolution really only sort of kicked on properly towards the end of 2003. Randy Orton got the pit over Cactus Jack, or over Mick Foley, sorry, and then we moved on to Backlash, where Orton and Cactus Jack had a no-holds-barred match. And I think this is the the match that really put Orton from, okay, this guy's a brilliant worker, to this guy could be a top, 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 top star. Um, and then from there, he went on to defend the title against Edge in a losing effort in Vengeance that year. Just give me a couple of thoughts on Randy Orton, Randy Orton's title reign, and probably what that what that title reign done for him, and what even dropping the belt to Edge would have done for Edge. Well, again, it just backs up what was said earlier on. The Intercontinental title was used to elevate who they saw as potential main event stars, and it elevated them from that Intercontinental level to the World Heavyweight or WWE title level. And that shows that 
you know, that, that's evident with Randy Orton and Edge as well, that when you consider that after that, they both went on to win numerous world titles, you know, whether it be the WWE or the World Heavyweight titles, the pair of them both won loads. They both won War Rumbles. They both won world titles. You know, the list is endless. There's been not many accomplishments. Money in the bank as well, the pair of them. 2004 really helped solidify Randy Orton as one of the top guys. You've, you've, you've really got to thank, he's really got to thank Mick Foley for that because Mick Foley played a massive role in that because yeah. obviously he put him over. And again, the same with Edge a couple of years later. Yeah. And I think the fact that Orton was one of these up-and-comers up and he had the Intercontinental title, he was obviously surrounded by the likes of Triple H Flair, but the fact that at that age you're being placed in a feud for a really prominent title against an all-time great, it, 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 it goes to show how much it meant back then, that the IC title, if, if it's being put on the line against Mick Foley, and you're going over Mick Foley, that's obviously going to cement you in the upper echelons of the card. And then again, the same for Edge down the line. Yeah, and um, the, the thing was too, when Edge beat Orton, Orton had that title. It wasn't a quick run. And that was something that you mentioned earlier with Benoit. Benoit beat the one Billy Gunn at Armageddon, then he dropped it to Jericho. So one of my questions for both of you, and we'll, we'll touch on this later, it will be the hot potato potatoing of titles. Does that take away from a title run or does it depend on the match how it's won etc we'll touch on that later but what i want to talk about right now is something when edge beat randy orton randy orton had that title for seven months and there was a lot of credibility brought back to that title from a long proper run like he was defending the title he was consistent with it he had a couple of little matches here and there with rvd little like you know, programs, I wouldn't say so much as a long-term feud or anything, but he had a little program with RVD. That feud with Mick Foley really started in sort of November, December 2003, and it didn't finish till April 2004. So again, as we talked about The Rock and Shamrock, there was a long-term storytelling, a long-term plan of how to get someone over, something that's massively missed these days. Keep him with someone with a long-term plan, Spud, I have two mm-hmm. matches for you. One of them will be Bret Hart and the Bulldog at SummerSlam 92, which mm-hmm. we've sort of touched on, but I want you just to go into a little bit more detail on your thoughts on it. And also Shawn Michaels, Razor Ramon. That's both WrestleMania and SummerSlam. But the reason I want to bring put those two together is because they both had brilliant matches and brilliant feuds for the IC title. But out of those matches, you really had Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels move to the next level and then have one of the best rivalries of all time for the for the world title or the WWF title. Just give me some thoughts on, on both those feuds, both those matches and what those IC matches really meant to their careers. The ladder match, it was the first televised ladder match in WWE, something along those lines anyway. It's great. It doesn't hold up in terms of like modern ladder matches, but it's doing a lot with a little back then. You only have one ladder. If you mess that up, you can't just go out and get another ladder. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> That's true. So uh, these days, there's people doing crazy stuff off the top of the ladder. The finish is iconic. I love Shawn Michaels gets his foot caught and then tries to get his foot uncaught from the ropes and then 
he's like on too early and traps his arm in it i think that's amazing like little details like that it uh also i think scott hall says he still makes money selling the picture uh of him holding both belts on top of a ladder he still makes like a fortune signing that and it was sean told him to pose like that from the bottom of the ladder it's like hold up both belts you can sort of hear it um sean kicked on from then razor at that time he had sort of flirted with being a main event guy but i don't think you could really trust him with his issues backstage same with bulldog actually um that was a good one-off match uh, they had that feud and they brought in their personal details him and brett uh but their family connections and whatnot and uh that match is fantastic um the crowd make it and um, because at the time the uk was so starved of wrestling you only got it like once a year if that now it's like once every three months before the pandemic so i do think it showed that bret hart could be relied on could have a match with big guys small guys everywhere in between and make it believable was a star making sort of match for bulldog but it didn't really push on from there um he was always kind of in brett's shadow or just dancing about the mid card and he left a couple of times of course but yeah two star making matches two of the best intercontinental matches going and it's something that's the storytelling and the subtleties of it like one match at the SummerSlam match just uh it was a roll-up it's a roll-up and it got the biggest pop of the night so again it just shows how much has changed from them but two fantastic matches definitely recommend them yeah and just before i move on there's there's a couple of topics i want to touch on before we finish but then i'm going to come back to you with something i mentioned earlier and it was the hot potatoing of a title if for toxic when benoit beat the one billy gun and then he dropped it to jericho a month later in my opinion that didn't hurt the title it didn't hurt any of the competitors because of who the competitors were and how the matches were but sometimes when they hot potato a title it almost takes away from the credibility of the title just give me some thoughts on on hot potatoing the title or lengthy reigns and what your opinion is on each um i have to i think there has to be a balance i was never against the hot potatoing provided it was hot potatoing between somebody that could carry that belt in the right manner uh, and it wasn't if it was being hot potatoed amongst people that really aren't going to cut it in the upper echelons of the card then i would be against it but if it was say the likes of jericho to benoit back to jericho using that as an example uh i would be okay with that it's sort of hot potatoed around sorry and you know what i'm just thinking earlier on what i was saying there about regal and jericho uh Jericho didn't have the belt of backlash for that year. That was a feud between him and Regal that originally started over the IC belt. But Triple H had it then because that was part of the whole all titles up for grabs. The Triple H dropped it to Jeff Hardy at one stage and then he won it back. Do you remember that? So it was sort of... Yeah, I think that was, was, that, was, that, was that a SmackDown? Yeah. Uh-huh. So 
I, I think Jericho actually dropped it to Triple H, come to think of it, and then Triple H dropped it to Jeff. He got it back, but then he eventually dropped it to Kane at Judgment Day in a chain match. But I was okay with the hot potatoing of the belt around then because of who was holding it. But what I will say about the long reigns, again, I am totally for uh, an extended reign, provided the title is being used correctly and it's actually being defended on a regular basis on TV shows or at pay-per-views. Now, the best example of that in recent years is The Miz, and he did a great job rejuvenating the title and making it relevant again because for too many years it was becoming a bit of an afterthought like i mean no offense ezekiel jackson held it yeah that says it all and, and speak, and, now and, that, just sorry to interrupt you neil just speaking of ezekiel jackson holding the title i, w- I really want to get on to some of the, who your some of the favorite or the best intercontinental champions are i would have definitely chris jericho be up there um, the Miz would be up there. Obviously, The Rock, Triple H. Then harken back to the like a long, long time ago, you'd have to say Pat Patterson would be up there, the Honky Tonk Man. I saw Dolph Ziggler was a half decent Intercontinental Champion. He's had quite a few reigns. For, for but, me, he would be, uh, he'd be your Workers Champion. He'd be a brilliant worker to have as champion to get someone else over. Um. Yeah, I, I, do you know what? Out of my favourites, I would say Chris Jericho and The Miz uh, would would be up there for me. I would say them too. Christian was a good Intercontinental Champion as well. Yeah, true. I would. My, my personal favourite was probably Bret Hart. Also in in that conversation for me would be a Chris Jericho and a Randy Orton. But if I was to say who the best one was, I would probably say Savage. But Potsy, uh, this is the thing with regards the Intercontinental title. Now, Jericho, again, he's one of my favourite all-time wrestlers. He has had the most reigns, but when you combine all his reigns together, he's actually not high up that league table. Yeah. Like he's, he would be a lot lower down for combined days as champion. So that sort of ties into what you're saying, Hot Potato, whereas The Miz is second in the all-time list. Like, and is Pedro Morales is top. Yeah, possibly. Um, I didn't look up the, the, the longest no, reigns as such. Is. But... Miz, Miz is quite close to him, and he's only about 20, 25 days off him. Yeah, I'll touch, so on, I'll, I'll touch on that shortly, because there's something I want to bring up around about, not so much the Miz, but around the modern day stuff, and that's where we will touch on the Miz. But Spud, a couple of mm-hmm. a couple of Intercontinental Champions to stick out for you. Who, who would you have on your sort of, on your list? My favourites, I think it's been, the Intercontinental has been underused since pretty much the Randy Orton edge kind of thing. Every now and again, every five years, yeah, every five years they'll like get an interest in it and give it to the Miz and say run with it. But I go way back, I would say Mr. Perfect, Bret Hart, um, Macho Man is fantastic with it. He elevated it um, to the level of like a world champion he was always in the conversation always second from last match um ultimate warrior i hate him but you have to have him like <laughs> up there but he's not one of my favorites when i think i was thinking when you asked Nilis, see when i like close my eyes i see shelton benjamin and that's yeah. where i was always a big fan when he first came in and beat chris jericho for it um and it's that old uh, attitude era sort of belt that's who i see and that's weird i've always been a shelton fan but i never really thought he's that far up uh 
Rob Van Dam as well, and Jericho. A very, you know, everything in hindsight. A very rad. A very rad. Sorry. Sorry, Potsy. But when you say there about Shelton Benjamin, Shelton Benjamin has actually held the title longer than both Chris Jericho and The Rock. Oh, serious? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Also, speaking of Shelton Benjamin, Taboo Tuesday 2004. Yeah. Benjamin beat Batista and Christian in a vote to challenge Chris Jericho for the title. He yes. was po- He was over. He was popular. Um. He, he was, beat Triple H around that time as well. Yeah, and then he had that brilliant match on Raw with Shawn Michaels. You know, the, he yeah, jumped the off the top super rope. Kick one. Yeah, and possibly maybe the best super kick I've ever seen, or definitely up there in that conversation. Um, when you spoke about the match, man, you said he really elevated the title, mm-hmm. and that's and that's sort of the last topic I really want to touch on, and I want to re- reference that to today's product. Um, just the fact that the Macho Man had that belt all of a sudden it felt this is a big deal and then not only that his promos as you said recalled at the intercontinental heavyweight championship or the heavyweight title again it just little subtle things it just elevated the title and whether he was doing that because he was frustrated with being kicked out of the world title picture or he felt he should be there he goes you know what i'm a big enough star i can make this a, the big title whether it was that or whether he was just getting the belt over i don't know it could be a combination of things, but it was fantastic. And what I want to reference that to is the current Universal Champion, Braun Strowman, is SmackDown's number one guy. And in my opinion, they've made a massive, massive error in not only bringing AJ Styles to SmackDown, because that's okay, but bringing AJ Styles to SmackDown, letting AJ Styles versus Daniel Bryan happen on SmackDown and quite possibly put on the match of the year so far, and have AJ Styles win that belt and all of a sudden, in my opinion, indirectly buried your world champion because you've given the best guy on the roster the upper mid-card title and now he has taken that already, just the fact that he's associated with it and elevated that so highly. So what, what do you think about AJ Styles' being the Intercontinental Champion and the Intercontinental title in today's product? You, you're kind of going against what you said earlier. You said you mentioned this a couple of times in texts. I don't see it as that. We've literally spent like 45 minutes talking about how it's the worker's title. And I know he is the best guy, but sometimes he can't be in the world title picture. Apart from that, uh, Braun Strowman wasn't the original plan. So I'm pretty sure they're just winging it. But AJ fits what we've been saying so far. In terms of it's always the more technical guys are the best ones. Uh, you get some turkeys in there as well. I th- I don't see it as a burial of the championship. I just think, why not have the big guy? I mean, Hulk Hogan was the world champion when Macho Man was doing it. Um, the Big Show was champion when you know uh, Stone Cold was the Intercontinental. You know, it's it. It's all ups and downs. You can't just constantly be in the world title picture. And I think it does more for the Intercontinental, but I'd never really put those two together, that it's burying the Universal. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thought. I've all, I, I've, I maintain it is definitely the workers' title. But mm-hmm. for me, I just feel it indirectly it blemishes your Universal champion when you have someone to the level of AJ Styles as your intercontinental champion especially when the jury's still kind of out on your universal champion i think it would be different say brock lesnar was the universal champion and aj styles was the intercontinental i don't think there's anything there that you can really 
say it maybe buries or indirectly affects but because Braun wasn't the initial plan as you said I just feel like it almost has like this indirect little burial I don't know how else really to say that but it's just a feeling I have about today's you know today's product I wouldn't sorry Potsy I wouldn't say it's a burial of Braun Strowman but I get what you're saying but the reason I think you're saying it is because of the suspect booking they've had with Strowman before Whereas if it was somebody else, say like a Brock Lesnar or even Roman Reigns, people would accept it more. Whereas if, what you're saying there about Strowman, I understand what you mean. Does it devalue him in the universal title a bit? I do get it, but I also agree with what Spud says, where it's good that somebody who is mainstream and who is who is very talented and it to me is the best on the roster. Someone like a big name has dropped into the IC title division. Sure. It's similar to back 2001, Triple H dropped down into the intercontinental division yeah, around I, that time and him and Austin stuff. And I think it was good. And then Kane and all around then too. So yeah, the only no, thing I, I think, I, I think, sorry, I think if, if Strowman hadn't been booked so poorly before, you wouldn't be thinking that now. Yeah, no, I, I take your points and I think you're both right to an extent and I think that I'm right to an extent it's hard to sort of explain I just feel like AJ Styles and Daniel Bryan to me is the world title feud whereas at the same time as the world title feuds going on in my opinion that's your star power feud for Smackdown you have Braun Strowman against two mid carters in The Miz and John Morrison and that's where I feel there's that, that little bit of discrepancy in between the two and, and that's really what I'm trying to say but I get you one thing that I think the, the one massive mistake they made with the Intercontinental title was when they amalgamated it with the World Heavyweight title in 2002 between Triple H and Kane and because of that it kind of lost its prestige but then it didn't last long because they brought it back the following year that is when if they had never have done that that might have contributed to it not being taken less seriously like it is nowadays. That was a mistake. And then obviously you would have, it was it played second fiddle because at WrestleMania for a good number of years you had like Umaga was the champion, but he was in a match against Lashley for a hair versus hair match for McMahon and Trump. Or you would have had the Intercontinental title uh, not being defended, but the champion was involved in a six man tag match and stuff. Do you know what I mean? Stuff yeah. like that. Or sorry, here's an example. Chris Jericho uh, was Intercontinental Champion at WrestleMania 24, but he was in the Money in the Bank ladder match. Stuff like that. Whereas if they had a had it like they did back in the day, where the Intercontinental title was being defended every year at WrestleMania. Yeah, and Spud, st- mm-hmm. st- sticking with the Intercontinental title in today's sort of product. There's times where the Intercontinental title not only the Intercontinental, maybe the US as well, and some and the tag belts, definitely. Sometimes they feel almost just like a prop, you know, just to have around, because sometimes they're on the pre-show, sometimes they're not defended for, was it that famous US title run with Dean Ambrose? He was a US champion for like 10 months and had two title matches or something. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel, To me, that's had a detrimental effect on the title and what it means. What's your thoughts on sort of, not just the Intercontinental, but maybe the US, the tag, and just those mid-card and upper mid-card titles in general on today's product? Um, I think with 
we've said before that as you go back, uh, I think it was Neil said about the Attitude Era, everything felt fresh. You had your hardcore division, European, intercontinental, and everything had something happening. I think now they're just trying to make their top stars and they're using anything. Like, see the amount of brawls between two people in the entire uh, locker room come out to break them up. Like, they do it once every six months now. Yeah. Uh, it does diminish. It's not just your jobbers. It's Kevin Owens and uh, people at that sort of level that are coming out trying to break up Brock Lesnar and Braun Strowman or something. Um, I do feel that, especially the tag team guys, do just kind of get brushed to the side or the join in and feuds um, with no sort of upturn for them they just get the pin on them it's so other so your main guys can't get pinned you need to bring in the usos or you need to bring in uh the street profits um i do think they forget about belts for ages like they just put it on nakamura and he's barely there he's still behind uh sammy Zayn, just bopping about yeah and they do they forget like i said earlier every five years they'll go oh we've got a intercontinental let's make it big for a while stick it on miz stick it on dolph for a while to keep him quiet i think it's used to keep people quiet as well that are kicking up a fuss yeah maybe to get them Um, to sign a new contract (laughs) basically yeah i will give you a run with the intercontinental but i mean nobody will care so i do believe that it's a lot of a bigger deal back in the day and it's something that needs to be looked at uh they're used too often as pawns for the main event scene yeah i I would agree with that just to close up um neil i'll I'll go to you first closing thoughts on the intercontinental title in today's scene now you mentioned the miz is one of your favorites um the miz wrestlemania 29 let's use that as an example the miz had a match with wade barrett for the intercontinental title and it shoved on the pre-show and the WrestleMania match, and it wasn't even that good a match at, the, at WrestleMania. It was quite, it was probably all right at best. But they were given 25 minutes on Raw the next night when Barrett beat Miz to regain the title after losing it at WrestleMania. And it was a 25 minute, and it was a very, very good match. And that's what I mean about I think at times they don't care about the belts or they're used as props. Just some closing thoughts on the Intercontinental title in today's product. Right, if I was in charge of WWE creative right now and AJ Styles is champion, I would be saying, right, we'll have another couple of months of him and Daniel Bryan. It might go back and forth. Bryan might get the title off him, but Styles gets it back, whatever. But I would have Styles come out of that feud with the title and then every single week, as you've already pointed out, because he is one of the top guys going, right, open challenge every week. And each week, somebody new, whether it be people from NXT or people lower down in the card, or even like a main eventer, challenges them each week in an open challenge. And then that way, they can tear the house down, put on a good match, and the belt's relevant again. Similar to what happened in 2015 when John Cena dropped down into the United States title picture. And he did an open challenge each week, and then you had... The night after he won it, Dean Ambrose came out. They had a great match. Then they had the feud with Kevin Owens. You know, people were coming out each week and feuding and uh, putting on great matches with him. Why can't they do that with the Intercontinental title? 
Well, so you could have somebody like, for example, next say he feuds with Daniel Bryan. Whoever comes out of that feud on top, they then each week open challenge. The Miz comes out one week. You could even bring back a legend for a one-off appearance. You know, there's so much you can do with it. The only and it would make it relevant again. The only thing I would say to you about that is that AEW are doing that right now with the TNT title with Cody Rhodes. So I don't really. I think it's overdone. Yes, that would be my, my 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 thing. I think it's a good thing, and your idea isn't wrong. I just think maybe the timing, purely because the AEW are doing it, and I almost feel if you continuously do an open challenge every week for six months or three months or whatever, so oh, here's another continental title match again. So all of a sudden, when you put it on pay per view, it's like sure we get this every week. You know, I feel like you could do it for six weeks to eight weeks until he loses the belt and then once he loses the belt it's done you can't have the next guy come out and do the same thing um but otherwise i would agree with you i think just having it in a more prominent position on the card would absolutely help and spud for your closing thoughts i want to even throw it back to this year's wrestlemania before before wrestlemania was let's say put on across two nights it was not just the intercontinental but there was quite a lot of those titles that might not have been on the show mm-hmm. and i just want to get your thoughts on really on that just as we close up um yeah i mean they've got wrestlemania if it had been in one night is it not, not ridiculous it's like seven hours long if you include the pre-show and the build-up and the kickoff everything else there's no reason why everybody can't get 10 minutes uh, you constantly hear about people getting bumped uh, and just having the match next day on Raw so that they can put a bikini match back in the day. You know, remember that Coors light night? That's right, WrestleMania 19. Remember the Playboy Bunny? And it was a, it bumped off somebody massive and they were annoyed. But um, no reason. Um, I enjoyed it being over two, two nights. I think it's a lot more... Uh, it's just easier to watch. It's easier to get into. Um, like you've been there when I fell asleep at WrestleMania a couple of times, so you know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. But I think Neil's on the right track with the open challenge, but it is overdone a little bit. Um, I think just make it relevant, make it more prominent, have it defended, have the Intercontinental. Uh, title defended have the u.s title defended there is like you said the dean ambrose one was like close to a year and only two matches and it's like regarded as one of the longest reigns of the u.s title maybe not these days but just fight with it have storylines have it mean something yeah it doesn't need to be like just random people coming in fighting for it like somebody surprising comes out and yeah happy days they had a really good match I nearly had you. I'll do it again at the pay-per-view. That's all it needs to be. It needs to be on screen for people to care about it. Yeah. Even That's it, my opinion anyway. Yeah, even something, Sorry, when you're... something as basic as like a six-man tag match and somebody yeah. beats, pins the IC title, champion clean, and all of a sudden yeah. going, I pinned you, you, I want a title match. Yeah, it's it's easy. It's been done for like 100 years. It's it's uh, basic storytelling. It's uh, I got a win off you. It's, they do it every now and again, but I think they forget about it for long stretches of time and just have them in silly feuds 
why not just put the belt on? Yeah, and Neil, I interrupted you, know? you. What were you going to add to what we and Spud were saying there? It was just that when you're talking about the United States title there, they really, to help boost it as well, they really need to design a new belt for it. It has went on far too long now. Was it like 17 years it's been that design, more or less, bar the Cena design when he had it? Like, it really needs an upgrade. I, I actually like the new Intercontinental design. I think it's cool. I don't. No? Okay. It's it's, it's different. I just think, it, I think it's horrendous looking. I think it doesn't like it. fit in anywhere. It's very different mm. to the rest of what their belts look like. You know, there seems to be a bit of a, you know, somewhat of a style between them all, you know, to an extent. But this one mm. just doesn't fit any sort of mold. I don't mind it. I think it looks okay. But I, I would agree with Spud Spud's that it just doesn't sort of fit the mold, if you know what I mean. Um, plus, I, I, I felt, sorry, I ahead. felt with the Intercontinental title. Do you remember Cody Rhodes brought back the classic design? Yeah. And. I felt they had that for far too long. The classic belt. They should have. They should have done a redesign of the Intercontinental title a few years ago. I sort of felt uh, it. It sort of diminished the classic look. The best Intercontinental belt for me was the one in the Attitude Era. I thought it was class. Around the time that the, the WWF one was was. Um, it wasn't. It's the one after the Winged Eagle. You know which one I'm talking about, where it has. It's 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 really it's really gold, <laughs> uh, but like, <laughs> no, do you know what I mean? When say when Triple H was champion in two thousand, the Intercontinental yeah. title around then, uh, which would have been like Benoit, Jericho, and stuff. That that belt is for me one of the nicest belts that WWE have ever had. Period. Never mind uh, just the Intercontinental title itself. That that was a classic belt. Yeah, it really was. Um, gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure as always. Um, this has been a topic I've wanted to do for a long, long time. And when I've always thought about doing a, like a, a podcast, a wrestling podcast, that I want to talk about the Intercontinental title. Some of my favorite matches are for the IC title. Some of my favorite competitors and wrestlers over the years are hugely influential in the Intercontinental title history. So I really appreciate you guys coming coming on and just talking with me about one of my favorite sort of things in professional wrestling well thank you for having me on the podcast again uh, the house that Aaron Potts built recurring guest <laughs> yeah cheers thanks very much for having us again Potsy as always thank you so much gentlemen until the next time thank you. you've been listening you. to the podcast with Spud Neil all the best Thank you for listening to the podcast with me, your host, Darren. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the podcast. Thanks for your time. Stay safe and tune in next time.